0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4. And the lesson this morning is going to be learning faith from Jonah's lack of faith. Uh, If you're not familiar with Jonah, or maybe even if you haven't really read through the entire book before, um, this chapter may be very surprising and unexpected And a lot of times, very unexpected things that we see in God's Word as we read it um, have great staying power. Um, And there are very valuable lessons that oftentimes we find in very surprising places in God's Word. Um, We did a class on Jonah's 1 through 3 a couple weeks ago, and um, I realized not everybody was there. So before we read chapter 4 and continue where we left off in the scripture reading, um, I'll just try to briefly overview some of the things that we looked at in the Bible class. So in 2 Kings 14, 23-27, uh, that's the section of, of history in the King's account that uh, shows John, Jonah's time frame when he was prophesying. It's about 760 BC, uh, just around that time frame. That's not an exact, exact time. So this is about 750, 60 years before, before Jesus. And it's during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Uh, the first King Jeroboam was the first king of the split between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And every king of Israel has been evil. Uh, the closest you get to a good king uh, is probably Jehu, who was a few kings before Jeroboam. But even Jehu was not truly a righteous king. Um but what we find out in Second Kings 14 is this was actually a very encouraging time frame. It's very surprising. It credits God's pity and compassion for that. It's not because Israel had repented of their sin. They were not abolishing the idols that the first Jeroboam had erected in Bethel and Dan. Um, nothing ultimately was really changing meaningfully in the nation in terms of its spiritual condition, but God simply saw the affliction of the nation, had pity on them, And so Jonah got to be the prophet who prophesied good and encouraging things to Israel and was able to help Israel and the king find encouragement to restore borders. And again, all of this is without them repenting. The the condition of the nation wasn't changing. During this time frame, northeast of the territory of Israel, the kingdom of Assyria is very violently gaining power and becoming a very large empire, one of the earliest world empires of multiple cultures. Uh, Assyria was gaining power, and within about 40 years, Assyria was going to completely destroy the northern tribe of Israel. Um, There were other prophets around this time frame who were even making that very clear to the tribes of Israel. So uh, while this isn't certainly something that we can know um, Jonah may have known that Assyria was going to be used as an instrument of God's wrath on the nation not too long into the future. And I think it's helpful to think about what kind of nation Assyria was. Um, if you if you look it up, uh, there are very easy things to find that really tell us about the nature of Assyria's uh, war tactics. Um, what they did was, on stone, they would carve uh, reliefs on stone to display what they would do to win Uh, to win wars and gain uh, power over nations. Assyria would do things like create totem poles of the heads of their enemies on pikes. They would display them outside of the walls of the cities that rebelled against them and refused to surrender. They would burn adolescents, uh, adolescent children of their enemies alive, again, to strike fear in other territories that would refuse to surrender to them. They would skin enemy kings alive And then they would erect pillars to display their skins, again, as a way of intimidating other nations, which was a great tactic of fear because Assyria did gain great power. And there's even record of a king that killed himself when the Assyrians came against him because he would rather die by his own hands than suffer the torture of the Assyrians when they would come. And Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria that Jonah was sent to, to preach to them and to give them, this nation, an opportunity to repent and receive grace. I want to very briefly, just very, very briefly, summarize Jonah chapter 1 through 3 here. In chapter 1, Jonah, when God charges him to go cry out against Nineveh, Jonah takes a ship to Tarshish, going the opposite direction of Nineveh, and God sends a storm on the boat uh, that uh, that was housing Jonah, and ultimately Jonah's thrown overboard and God ends up humbling the sailors and saving them. They end up committing themselves to the Lord and it says they ended up fearing the Lord greatly. Uh, and this was all done through Jonah's disobedience. Chapter two, while Jonah is swallowed by a large fish and note in Jonah chapter two, um, well, one verse 17 and the beginning of chapter two, it's a large great fish, not necessarily a whale as it's oftentimes thought of. But God saves Jonah through his disobedience and humbles Jonah, at least in chapter 2. And so he prays to God, seemingly as he's drowning and fading away, and God hears his prayer and delivers him. The fish ends up spitting Jonah out on the land, and he goes to Nineveh. And God saves Nineveh. It's one of the greatest accounts of repentance, hearing God's message in the entire Bible. It's extraordinary. And I mentioned this in the Bible class, but we never, ever, ever see Israel ever respond like the people of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. It is astonishing. So you'd think Jonah being a prophet of God, this is, this is worth celebrating. You imagine this is, this is a reason to rejoice, the most successful prophet God had ever sent. I mean, can you imagine if you went to downtown Savannah on a busy day, And you worked up the courage to proclaim to the people in downtown Savannah that God's wrath was looming and men need to repent. And imagine within a couple days, literally everybody, including the mayor of Savannah, legitimately and genuinely repents. Imagine how shocking that would be. That's what happens in Nineveh, this horrible, violent city. So Jonah chapter four, surprisingly what we see is unrelenting anger. As Jonah's response. So I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4 all the way through, and then we'll work through some lessons um, after we read the text. Jonah chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, "'Death is better to me than life.' Then God said to Jonah, "'Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant?' And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? So you get there at the end and you expect, okay, well... Then what, right? Um, And we'll get to why I think that's actually important. Um, Some lessons we can learn from the book ending that way. Um, But I want to start with Jonah's anger um, and some things we learn about his anger. What we're going to do in this lesson is first look at Jonah's anger. Then we'll look at God's compassion. And then we'll look at some reflections we can take for ourselves, reflections that Jonah failed to make in this chapter. So something actually good about Jonah, um, or at least partially good, one thing I can credit Jonah for here is he is incredibly honest in the most gritty terms. Um, What we'll talk about in just a minute is God is working through these uh, situations really to instigate a response from Jonah and a conversation with Jonah to get him to reflect and think about where he really is and where his heart is. And Jonah is very honest with God when we don't want to do what God says, when we would rather choose ourselves or choose the world rather than God, aren't we ultimately choosing death rather than life? And so although Jonah here is being like a little child throwing an incredible temper tantrum, I think his honesty makes him easier to judge and condemn. Really, God does that throughout his word. We've talked so much recently as we've looked at parables and other accounts that God and his word will oftentimes give us caricatures that are very easy for us to see fault in and to judge. And what we've been talking about is when we see those examples in parables, in Jesus's life or otherwise, the point is always to equip us to examine our heart and things that are much more subtle that are easy for us to overlook. So I just, I really want to caution us that as funny as it is what happens here, I do believe that what God is ultimately trying to do is to teach us lessons about ourselves through Jonah being honestly very childish, right? So Jonah is at least very honest with God. He doesn't like what God did. He doesn't want anything to do with God. So really he understands then the only other choice is just kill me, let me die. And that's at least very honest. It's very shocking and it's very revealing. I think we learn a plethora of lessons. So many things that I don't think we're even going to be able to talk about this morning because of Jonah's anger. And, and it's, it's shocking. You'd think that the book is going to end with Jonah changing or just being astonished. The city of Nineveh repented on his first day's journey. The king repented. The people repented. They even made their animals fast with them, and they put sackcloth even on their animals. To really just go all out with their repentance toward God. And so you'd hope that this is going to end with Jonah just being absolutely overwhelmed with what God has done. That's that's not what we see. Here's what we do see we see God deliberately and progressively instigating Jonah's anger. Why? You know, when Jonah was living, there were other prophets who were very faithful to the Lord, there were prophets in Judah. There was prophets who were faithfully uh, dealing with very difficult situations and seemingly had a very deep and genuine love for God and a pursuit of repentance. And God chooses Jonah, someone who I'm sure he knew was not wanting to go to Nineveh and would run away. And even after this event takes place and Jonah is angry, after Jonah in verse 4 and 5 notice, God says, do you have a good reason to be angry? What does Jonah do? Does he respond? Does he engage God in meaningful conversation and answer his question? No. He just goes away. So God answers or God asks Jonah this question. He gives no answer. He's done. And notice God further instigates Jonah. Jonah goes to build this shelter in verse verse 5. And God appoints his own plant to provide an extra degree of shade that makes Jonah extremely happy. And what does God do? He takes the plant away the next day. And when the sun begins to get really hot, God sends a scorching east wind to make sure that Jonah is miserable because of the lack of shade and the lack of the plant. And this instigates further conversation. So I just want to ask you a question. Is God trying to hurt Jonah or help him? Is God trying to take joy away from Jonah or is he giving it to him? Is God cursing Jonah or is he blessing him? Is God just trying to trouble Jonah and condemn him or is he ultimately trying to help him? And isn't it amazing, by the way, how gentle and reasonable God is with Jonah? Like, is he being harsh? Is he being critical? You know, is God just ready to throw away the relationship at the first opportunity of disobedience or rebellion? No, we see God seemingly even begging Jonah to listen and learn and completely putting things in his court with gentleness. And so here's something that I think is very important. Like I said earlier, Jonah spoke very honestly with God, and I think God seeks that. Uh, God doesn't want us to be in some kind of gray area where we have no sense of confrontation with our hearts or our sins or issues that we hide in our heart. God wants those things to be drawn out and brought to the surface. He wants those things to be confronted. But as important as it is to be honest with God, what's even more important from there is to honestly listen to God, right? And that's where Jonah failed. He was honest with God about, he was very upset with Nineveh. He was very upset with God being willing to forgive the Ninevites and be compassionate to them. He was very upset about the plant that withered away, but he wasn't willing to listen to what God had to say. He wasn't willing to examine himself as God was seeking. We're going to pull more lessons from that later. But this is what I think is most shocking in verse 2. And as we were reading this, you may have found this to be very shocking as well. What is Jonah so upset about? He's upset that God is gracious and compassionate. He's upset that God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He's upset that God relents concerning calamity. God's greatest attributes that make him most worthy of praise and honor and worship and devotion, those are the very attributes that Jonah was most upset with God about. And a part of the account in chapter four that I think is really critical is Jonah only loved God as long as it suited him and benefited him. So, When Jonah was in Israel, God being gracious and compassionate, it really empowered him as a prophet. He got to be the heroic prophet, right? He got to proclaim encouragement to Israel without needing to demand their repentance as other prophets did and as many prophets of Judah did and even prophets who were before him like Elijah. And so he just got to be the good guy. I'm sure everybody loved being around Jonah and loved hearing his message. And so there was a time when God's attributes benefited Jonah and gave him maybe some form of popularity. But once Jonah had to suffer and become uncomfortable because of who God is, his love for God was gone. And that's something that we're going to think about as we move on in the lesson is do we truly love God for who he is or do we only serve God so long as it's immediately benefiting us? What we find out about Jonah is his love for God only went so far as his own personal comfort. So that leads us to the last point we'll look at with Jonah's anger. What does God keep asking Jonah? Do you have a good reason to be angry? By the way, something worth noting, if you have any doubt about where Jonah is spiritually in his relationship with God, this is the same question that God asked Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah's in the same position as Cain, and there's no doubt Cain was not in a good relationship with God when that question was asked, right? But he's unwilling to listen. But what we notice is Jonah is not incapable of happiness. He's not incapable of even a quick change of, well, now things are actually really good. If you look at verse six, at least the New American Standard at the end of the verse translates it that Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, So it's not that Jonah couldn't become happy or experience happiness. But what happened when the little shade of that plant was gone and the sun beat down on him and the wind? He begged with all his soul to die. Jonah's love for God only went so far as his excitement or only went so far as his own comfort. I think we learn a lot about Jonah because we see God expose what makes him most excited and we see what bothers him. And I want to stop for some reflection here before we look more at God's character and his compassion. I think generally you learn a lot about a person's heart and you are able to learn a lot about your own heart when you really examine what makes you happiest. Like what gets you the most fired up and excited? What angers you? What frustrates you? What bothers you the most? And if you really examine those things, you will find out a lot about the condition of your heart and where you really stand with God. Does evangelism excite you? Do the parts of God's character or his instructions that don't benefit you and are hard for you, do those bring you joy? And do the difficulties of applying God's word, even when it's hard and you have to crucify yourself, does that bring you joy? Or is your service with God and your relationship relationship with his people contingent on your own comfort and the benefits that you immediately seem to be receiving by those relationships? Those were things that Jonah was unwilling to consider and be confronted with. But we'll think more about reflections at the end of the lesson. I want to spend some time thinking about God's character and compassion. Because God's compassion ultimately is the centerpiece of Jonah. Three times the word compassion is mentioned here. Verse 2, you have it in the midst of many other words that imply compassion. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and relenting concerning calamity. Verse 10, God is wanting Jonah to see you had compassion on this plant. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Jonah is a book that is saturated with God's compassion. And the book ends with us being confronted with that center theme. God was compassionate on the sailors in chapter 1. God was compassionate on Jonah when he was drowning in chapter 2. God is compassionate on Nineveh when they repented in chapter 3. And yes, God is even showing compassion to Jonah in chapter 4. God's compassion is the center of this book. Jonah reinforces a great truth. I think that is really critical as well. Jonah reinforces that God's character and his compassion, it really is shocking, challenging, and it really is heart-changing to consider. This is what you see with Jesus and the cross ultimately, isn't it? That when Jesus died on the cross, that reinforced a great truth. That the compassion of God that Jesus was going to embody and fulfill went way farther than what any Jew even understood, knowing the law, knowing the events that have happened in their history, knowing about Jonah, knowing about Nineveh, knowing about the Exodus, knowing about the return from captivity. And yet God's compassion was still shocking, challenging, and heart changing because it was still going to move to a degree that nobody had anticipated. And I think we really need to be confronted with that. I think we can grow way too accustomed to the idea of forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And when we're not engaging in evangelism and trying to reach out to others and doing heart-changing work of trying to share forgiveness with others in meaningful and hard ways we can easily become content, I think, with receiving something and not sharing it in ways that reinforce the challenge of what it is that God has actually done for us. That's where Jonah faltered. He would, he would gladly and eagerly receive compassion. He needed forgiveness in Jonah chapter two when he was in the water, but doing the hard work of actually giving that to others and extending that to others, that's where it stopped. We need to realize how shocking God's compassion is. And As we grow, it should only become more and more amazing. Jonah had an opportunity to praise God for who he is and for his works. And God's character, his works, they show the glory of who he is, even when it doesn't benefit us. Notice Psalm 103. Um, The statement Jonah makes about God is kind of ironic in multiple ways. One irony is... Every other place, it seems, where that statement is made, God is a God of graciousness, compassion, uh, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. Every time that statement is made, it is in praise of God. Jonah is the only person who makes that statement as a way of resenting God, right? In Psalm 103, you see the psalmist profusely praising God and quoting that same idea about God that comes all the way back from Exodus chapter 33, Psalm 103, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor awarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So I want to bring in this next point with this psalm. We are generally, and I include myself in this, we are generally too quick to forget and accuse God and too slow to remember him and praise him. And that's what we see in Jonah. He was overwhelmingly equipped to praise God and love God and admire what he had done but it's like Jonah's memory was hemorrhaging every moment he had completely forgotten what he truly knew about God and what God had done with Israel and understanding what God had done in Jonah chapter two when he was in the heart of the sea and in the belly of the fish and the prayers that he made and God had delivered him he let his difficulties cause him to focus more on the moment than what God had done on the past and done for others. And you see in Psalm 103, the focus on blessing God and praising him for who he is and remembering the things that he had done and making sure to account for those things and being determined to see that God is righteous in all of his deeds and good in all of his ways and recognizing the things received by God that are not matters of comfort but matters of forgiveness instead. I want you to notice a contrast as well in Psalm 78. 77. These two psalms are pair psalms. Um, They go together. Um, They're both written by Asaph, and they're two psalms where the themes and the things that are spoken in the psalms really flow from one to the next. Psalm 78 is a psalm where he's reflecting in tribulation that God's people in the past habitually forget God, and they put God to the test And then they end up being punished and brought low because they're forgetting about the things that God had done that equipped them to serve him and love him and follow him. And so in verses 5 through 8, he says that God established a testimony and a law and he commanded their fathers that they should teach their children that their children might know and put their confidence in God in verse 7 and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. Notice verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God refused to walk in his law, they forgot his deeds. I heard one time something that really helped me, that in the Bible, what we see with God is there are two primary components to a covenant and how it's kept. A covenant starts with commitment. We see that with Jonah even in chapter 2 in his prayer. He made a commitment that we saw in our scripture reading, right? Covenants begin with commitment. But how are they sustained? They start with commitment, but they are sustained by memory. That's what the psalmist is determined to remember, not to be like those who are constantly forgetting what God had done. Look back at Psalm 77, and I want to read verses 1 through 12. Now I want you to see in his trouble and in the difficulty of his situation how determined the psalmist is to remember the character of God despite his situation and how determined he is to remember the works of God in the past and apply them to the present Psalm 77, verse 1. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sighed, and my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. And here, by the way, are some rhetorical questions that are, I think, meant to strengthen faith that God will deliver in the end. God will stay faithful. Verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And those, the answer, by the way, rhetorically, is no, 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 no. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So again notice that contrast that in Psalm 78 he's reflecting through Israel's history that God made his covenant to be remembered and it was going to be sustained by their memory and they failed and every time they failed to remember the things that God had done they turned away from him and became rebellious. Then he punished them and they were brought low and they remembered him and he delivered them and then it just keeps repeating again and again and that's the same cycle that we see in the book of Jonah. In Psalm 77 though he is determined I am not going to let my troubles and my circumstances drive me away from remembering who God is and what he's done in the past. I will put more trust in the truth of what God has done in the past than I will put trust in my circumstances of the present. And so we need to be striving to see things more from God's perspective and not from our own. I think it's amazing the gentleness of that lesson in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Jonah's very childish and very small trouble with this little plant that came up and sheltered him and then uh, was eaten away overnight, that little trouble could have gained, given insight to Jonah of God's greater character with Nineveh and his greater compassion. Just that little inconvenience. God reaches out to Jonah and says, you had compassion on that plant, Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And isn't it amazing what God's perspective is? You know, Nineveh, the Assyrians were horrendously violent people. And they were going to ruthlessly, they were ruthlessly going to destroy God's own people a generation later. And God says there's more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand or their left, as well as many animals I love how it ends that way. Isn't an animal worth more than a little plant? God's compassion is shocking. How much God cares for life and desires to save it is shocking. One last thing. What we least want to do of things that God has said, and those that we least want to interact with, the commands we most struggle with, the people that we most struggle to reach and interact with, Those are the people and those are the commands that help us to understand God the most. Jonah needed this interaction with God. What he needed the most was to go to Nineveh and be confronted with these lessons. There might be brethren here that are very difficult for you to interact with. Those brethren are your greatest window into the glory of God. There may be people in this community that you interact with on a daily basis or could be interacting with but the idea is intimidating and maybe it just feels too challenging and overwhelming. Those are the situations that will help you know God the best. Maybe hospitality is a really difficult command for you to follow or patience or gentleness or the putting away of anger, whatever it is. That command that you're most prone to want to ignore, that is your window into the glory of God if you strive to humble yourself and keep it. So let's end the lesson thinking about Jonah's failure to reflect as God was striving for. Um, so I just want to emphasize again, Jonah's greatest failure in this book is simply that he did not remember. He did not reflect. You know, you read chapter 2, and if you read chapter 2, you think, wow, that reads like one of the greatest psalms. What a commitment. What, what a heart of faith. And then you get to chapter 4, and it's like, okay, well, what, where'd that go? You know, where'd, where'd the commitment go? Where did the love for God's mercy go and the need for mercy how come Jonah wasn't willing to listen to God try to appeal to him with the plant? I mean, it's, Jonah knew things about God, but it's, it's like he knew nothing at all. Nineveh previously would have known very little about God, but by the way they respond, it's like they know God very intimately. So again, there's this great irony that the prophet who says good things about God knows nothing, and the people who are very violent and know nothing, they know everything. Again, because of how they respond to the truth. And so a tender heart is one of the most valuable and important aspects in a relationship with God. It's a tender heart that equipped the sailors to fear God in chapter 1. It's a tender heart that equipped Jonah to repent in chapter 2. It's a tender heart that equipped the Ninevites to repent in chapter 3. And it's a tender heart God was trying to put into Jonah in chapter 4. It's a tender heart in Acts chapter 2. That was that great day we see people responding, being pierced to the heart, reflecting on what God had done and what they had done to Jesus, letting the weight of their guilt hit them hard and humbling them, and we see genuine repentance because of that tender heart. It's a tender heart that, as we talked about in the Bible class this morning in our marriages, helps us learn from our, mis- our mistakes or our sins, even in marriages or any relationship, and repent and trust God and depend more on his mercy. Jonah failed to keep in his heart and remember where he was and what God had done for him in chapter 2. And I want this to be something that we can see in a very relatable way. When was Jonah closest to God? It was when he was buried in water, when he was given salvation through water, and when he was given hope and a second chance out of water. I don't think I need to even explain where that connection is leading, right? But I think in Jonah chapter 2 we see something very relatable where Jonah was saved through water. It's through water that God heard him and that appeal was made and he was given a second chance. But what Jonah failed to do was to follow through on the very things that he had seen as truth when buried in the water. And the thing that Jonah really just needed to do, it's, it's just its so incredibly simple. Even if Jonah didn't remember the history of Israel, Even if he didn't remember the things that God had done for him personally that began his work even as a prophet. What happened in chapter two when he was buried in water, all he needed to do was carry those truths immediately forward and remember them and apply them to the people of Nineveh. And that's what he did not do. This is critical and it is a central part. It is a primary part of the work of our faith. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 and I want to look there at what is said about baptism to Christians who had been baptized um, and to make some connections that I think will help this become more relatable. Um, Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. I want to mention something here before we read this and I would encourage you to think more about this. Um, talk to me about this if you think maybe this this is, this is idea is off. Um but from thinking about this, it seems like nearly every truth in our faith, in our relationship with God, is culminated and tied together in baptism. And there are so many rich lessons that are meant to equip us to move forward in a sound and humble and focused love for God if we keep the lessons that God taught, that taught us through baptism as we carry those things forward. Colossians 2, I'll illustrate this more as we read. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Remember, it's not being written to people who are not Christians. These were those who had already been saved and buried with Christ and risen to new life. But he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I want you to think about some of the things that are said here that all culminate together in baptism and the saving work that God accomplishes at that moment. How much do you think about these things? How much do these things impact you and motivate you on a daily basis? How much do these things change your mentality about others and help you appreciate, again, things that God has done in the past that may contradict present trials and things we may think about the present if we think too much about the trials of the moment? Notice in verse 9, our connection with the fullness of deity and Jesus culminates together when we were buried with Christ in baptism. In verse 10, it's the moment when we were made complete. By the way, what happens when you legitimately feel like you are not complete? What I have found when talking with others and studying with them is generally people will pursue relentlessly and prioritize whatever they feel like makes them complete. And people will lust for things and desire things at God's expense when they legitimately and honestly feel like they are incomplete without it and they need it because it will complete them. What he says is, no, when you were baptized... That's the moment. You were already made complete. So, what should we seek then? And notice in verse 11 and 12, our old life of sin apart from God was totally removed in a kind of circumcision where God is removing our body of sin away from us in that moment, burying us with Christ, being raised up with Him through faith that God is working in that moment to fulfill His promises. Verse 13, it's the moment we go from being dead in sin to being made alive together with God, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And it's in verse 15, it's in that moment, that our connection with the authority and the rule of Christ is made perfect. But that's not where it ends. Look at verse 20. So he makes this relevant to where they are right now. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So he says, hey, there's things going on right now, and there's, there's things you're following and letting captivate you that completely contradict the foundation you were set on when you were baptized into Christ. And if you really reflected on what God did and what that means, you wouldn't be following these things. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. So in verse 1, when was it that he just said they are raised up with Christ? When was it in verse, uh, verse 3 that they had died and when we had died? Again, he's using truths that culminated in baptism and the work that God did in that moment, and he's trying to encourage us and the Colossians, you need to remember what God did need to carry those truths forward. And if you value that work that God did, and if you are striving to meditate on it and remember it, this will catapult you forward to make more full applications that extend out of that foundation. So here's the question then. I think Jonah ends as it does, maybe not primarily for this reason, but I think ultimately the book isn't necessarily really about Jonah and how he responds. What will you do? How will you respond? What will you get out of God's interaction with Jonah? What will you do with it? Are you going to remember what God has done in your life? Are you going to give more credit to God and his graciousness, even if it makes you uncomfortable, than just serving your own comforts and only serving God when you're comfortable? And so the book is ultimately a call to respond. And we reserve this time at the end of our assembly, um, at the end of the sermon, if that you are convicted that you need to respond, that you need to consider what God has done and put on Christ in repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. We, res- we reserve this time if the message or anything we've done in the assembly has convicted you and made you think about those things. But if you need the prayers of the saints for encouragement or support or for any reason spiritually, we reserve this time to bring those things forward as we stand and sing our meditation song.